Hey, welcome back to the pod crashed. Today we're telling the story of Japan Airlines flight 350. This episode is a little different. Uh, it does include a lengthy discussion about mental health. We care about you, love you and hope that you're doing well. And if you feel like you'd like to talk to somebody, we're going to include some links in the description as well as discuss a few resources in the conversation. In case you don't listen through to the very end, um we are considering doing longer episodes about particular flights or particular incidents. Uh, if you would be interested in that, um please let us know. It might mean that episodes come out uh less frequently, but hopefully it will still be thoroughly enjoyable. So, if that's something that you'd like to see us do, throw us an email. And either way, we hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Dear friends, if you hear it not go on this, we tried so hard yeah. not to subject you to that. Yeah. But yeah. So <laughs> uh today we're talking about Japan Airlines flight 350. Joe. Yes. All Good right. old Joe. Here we go. I've been waiting for one of these. I know. It's sad because I don't like to throw my beloved Joe under the bus, but Yeah. You gotta sometimes. <laughs> throw Delta under the bus any day, but Yeah, I was going to say it's not really them per se. Yeah, no. I mean, well, I mean, we'll get we'll see you oh no okay 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 okay. i'm ready um so we're actually gonna start on february 8th of 1982 the glory of the 80s yeah japan airlines flight uh is flying from tokyo to fukuoka from haneda to fukuoka um i can hear all of my old co-workers teasing me for the way i say (laughs) it's it's supposed to be It's very hard for me to say. It's supposed yeah. to be like Fukuoka. Yeah. But I want to say Fukuoka. Fukuoka. <laughs> Fukuoka. <laughs> so forgive our accents, I guess, okay. but and uh fun fact, the um airport code for Fukuoka is F U K. Perfect. Yeah. My favorite. It, That's the just, airport? Yeah. It's it's F U K. Ah, so good. Yeah. That's perfect. so good. Mm. Um, so the uh, pilots are flying a DC-8, which is, in my opinion, a very cool plane. Um, so uh, DC-8 is a four-engine aircraft. Um, it's a really beautiful old plane. It's a McDonnell Douglas. Um, they uh, have, you know, two wing-mounted engines on each side of the aircraft, Uh, the plane seats somewhere in the range of 180 to 190 people so it's oh, a decent wow. size plane yeah yeah decent size and a lot of range with four engines so um so our pilots on this flight are 35 year old captain Seiji Karagiri 33 year old first officer Yoshifumi Ishikawa and 48 year old flight engineer Yoshimi Ozaki. Uh so 
this plane has uh, three people in the cockpit, you know, the uh, pilot, first officer, and a flight engineer. Uh, flight engineers don't are, are extremely uncommon if they exist at all now because computers do the work of uh, uh, computers do the work that flight engineers used to do. Mm. And I'm sure there's plenty to say about that, you know, and the usefulness of having a third person in the cockpit. But right uh, on this day in 1982, <laughs> there are three people in there. There you go. Yeah. So um, Seiji is the captain is, uh, you know, an experienced pilot at 35. I mean, it's pretty dope to be, uh, captain for Jal at 35. And, uh, Ishikawa is pretty new. He's got around 400 hours in the air. So he's like a fairly new, you know, young pilot. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then our flight engineer, he's, he's solidly experienced. (laughs) He's seasoned. Yeah. (laughs) So as they're taking off, um, from Tokyo to head to Fukuoka, uh, as they're climbing suddenly the captain turns sharply to the right Hmm. and throws the thrust reversers on the right side of the plane meaning that uh so instead of all four engines propelling the plane forward he leaves the power on the left engines but on the right engines he pulls them back Mm -hmm. thrust reversers so uh, as he does that uh, he doesn't explain doesn't say anything about why and uh our dear yoshifumi uh he uh, takes control of the plane and steadies the plane and, and sends it back on course and the pilot the captain just says well done what and then they just continue on to fukuoka no yeah. Yeah. So, and then everybody goes home, goes to bed. And then the next morning, they're going to fly back to Haneda. So, February 9th, 1982, Japan Airlines Flight 350 takes off from Fukuoka. Uh, nobody reported the incident. Nobody mentioned anything about that little kerfuffle on the flight there and now the same crew same three uh pilots are headed back to bring the same plane back to haneda Mm. the flight from fukuoka to haneda is in the hour range it's um a la new york to buffalo uh takes off at uh 7 30 i think 7 7 30 7 40 didn't write it down of course Um, and around 8.35, they're, uh, approaching Haneda. Um, they are coming in toward Haneda now. There's a little bit of, um, side information here. So it, the two pilots, right, work together for everything, mm-hmm. right? And in this case, all three pilots, but, uh, for takeoff and landing, one person is flying the plane and the other person is calling out information that they need, right? So in this case, as they're coming into land, the captain, Seiji, is flying and uh, Yoshifumi is calling out information so he can look at what he's, so that the person flying can look ahead, look at what they're doing, and somebody else is providing them with altitude, speed, all of that. So there's something called... Um, 
the uh, decision height. As they're uh, coming in, right, pilots have the opportunity if they don't think they're going to be able to successfully land the plane, if they're worried about it, if they don't feel like they're lined up right, if they're going too fast, they're going too slow, they can just go around, right? And most of us have probably been on planes where this happened. The um, pilot, you know, the stars just weren't aligning for that landing. So they just speed up, uh, ascend, and then go around and land, try to land again, mm-hmm. right? It's pretty normal. Um, so the decision height is the height at which you have to either decide to put the plane down or uh, ascend and go around, right? Initiate a missed approach is what it's called. Um, So there's decision height in this case was 200 feet. So very, very close to the ground. Um, Haneda is directly on the water. So maybe if you've flown into uh, most maybe not most airports, but lots and lots of airports, um, you fly over water right up until you're on the runway, mm. right? So that's the case in Haneda. So decision height is, is 200 feet. Okay. So as they're landing and Seiji is flying, um, Yoshifumi is calling out altitude information. And he would also provide speed information, flaps, things like that. Um, so that the, uh, it's just how, Everybody works together for landing and takeoff. So at 500 feet, uh, Yoshifumi calls out 500. You know, we're at 500 feet from the ground. So yeah. pretty close to the ground, keeping the pilot in the mix or the captain in the mix. Uh, Seiji doesn't say anything. Just silence. Okay. So they keep descending and they keep slowing down. And 200 feet is decision height. And the flight engineer says, you know, basically, hey, we're approaching decision height. You know, are you, what's your plan, guy? Like, are you going to land? Yeah. Are you going to take, like, what are we doing? Uh, Seiji doesn't say anything. Oh. So they keep descending and Yoshifumi calls out 200 decision height. Captain still says nothing. They keep descending. They're lined up for the runway. Like they are, things are, look fine. The captain just isn't responding. At 164 feet above the water, there are two conflicting reports. Okay. Uh, One report is that the captain suddenly disengaged the autopilot. And threw on the thrust reversers, which, so uh, we talk about stall a lot, right? Stall is when you're not going fast enough and your plane just falls out of the the sky. Obviously, if you're 150 feet above the ground and you throw on thrust reversers, your plane is going to fall out of the sky. Uh, The other report is that he canceled the autopilot and pushed the controls forward and killed the engines. Jeez. Whichever was the case, whichever it was, the result is the same. The plane at, you know, very, very, very close to the earth starts to fall too sharply toward the water. Uh, The flight engineer and the first officer both jump up and and grab the captain and try to restrain him to get him away from the control column. He's screaming nonsense, things that don't make any sense. And he starts to just weep uncontrollably. Oh, no. 
Yoshifumi tries to regain control of the plane, but it's too late. And they crash. Oh my gosh. 1,500 feet short of the runway. Oh. They crashed into the water. The uh, water here is very, very shallow. And as they make contact with the water, the uh, front portion of the plane where the cockpit is breaks off oh and continues to shoot forward. And they weren't buckled. Uh, they, right, well, I guess they jumped right, up. Right, if to, they jumped right, up so and they, they were helping him. Right, they were trying to, right, restrain him and, and keep him away from the control column. So the plane crashes into the water. Obviously, there's a, you know, amazing network of rescue personnel who are always standing by yeah. at airports. Um, everybody jumps into action. They have rescue boats because they're on the water. So rescue boats um, start to uh, paddle up to the plane where people are, you know, holding onto the the rafts that come out of the stairs or slide that turn into rafts outside of the um, doors of the aircraft, the exit, emergency exits. So people are floating, holding onto those. And as they uh, are approaching the plane and all the passengers, there is, uh, they arrive at the cockpit portion first right it's closer to the um the runway Uh, and they pick up you know several people who are there and one of them is seiji and seiji took off his hat took off his uh jacket with all of his um you know the pins and stripes and everything had put on a sweater Jumped into the boat. Wait, and said, he, yeah. he's like treading water and he's changing his clothes. No, he. I don't know how he did it. I don't know when he did it, but one way or the other, he swapped out of his clothes <sighs> and then got into the boat and said that he was a businessman. Didn't say anything <laughs> about being the captain. The other two pilots were um, were trying to help people. The other two pilots were still, you know, in rescue mode. Seiji hopped in the boat, said I'm a businessman, and paddled back to shore. It didn't take too long right. to uh, figure out that uh, who Seiji was, and <laughs> he was arrested. Yeah. Right. Um, 24 people were killed. Oh, my gosh. So while Sagey's in jail, obviously they're doing uh, research. They're seeing what happened. They're trying to figure out why this happened. Sagey had just returned. So this was in February. Sagey had been off for mental health reasons until November. So less than three months ago, he had returned to work after taking a sabbatical due to his mental health. Seiji had called the police to his house several times because he thought that someone had bugged his telephone. Oh, no. Seiji's wife had left him temporarily because she was scared. So at Seiji's trial, the uh, defense was basically that he's sick yeah right he's sick so seiji was um while like during this time seiji uh had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia okay yep yeah and the other two pilots who were in the cockpit with him said 
that he was clearly delusional, right? They, yeah. they saw him snap. They saw something happen the day before. They hadn't reported it. Yeah. But it's important to keep in mind that um, so there's a couple different reasons why you might not report that, especially at this time and in this culture. Um, even today, I think that there's a you defer to the captain, right? That's a pretty natural thing to defer to the captain. Um, they are the one in charge, right? But now we've talked about like that concept of crew resource management, the idea that like everybody has to work together, that everybody is a really important like vital part of this team and like everyone should speak up if something is wrong yeah this was in the 80s right and this is in japan and and mental health issues are involved exactly no absolutely absolutely and it's important i don't want to like i think it can be japan is such a fascinating culture um that it's impossible not to be incredibly curious about it right Mm -hmm. um and i don't want to like speak at length too much i guess but uh, just for reference when i worked at the airport at jfk for jal the pilot or the captain rather and the first officer and the other and the uh, second officer the three pilots who would fly the plane headed from jfk to tokyo would uh, travel in order so the captain would go first then and i mean like as they're walking through the airport so the captain is always the first one through the uh through security uh he's always the first one on the plane uh when they're on the escalator it goes in order captain first officer second officer Uh, I, i don't think it's it's hard to exaggerate how important hierarchy is in like the professional world in japan so they and i don't want to so i I really don't want to um like uh, be unfair to the um, other two pilots for not saying something yeah um so seiji had and again going back to that concept of of mental health right like seiji's wife knew something was wrong Mm -hmm. seiji knew something was wrong he I can't imagine the guts it took to take time off from work for mental health reasons. In the 80s. In the 80s. Yeah. In the 80s as a man in Japan. The like, early 80s. Right. Right. And he's a young man and he's clearly, he's 35 and he's the captain of a, of, uh, he's a uh, captain at jail, right? Like right. he's an accomplished young man. Uh, and people, you know, that's it's people knew something was wrong, but yeah. people also didn't know what to do. And the other thing is he flew the plane, right? He flew the plane there the day before he flew the plane from, you know, he had a career. He he was he clearly often... he clearly knows what he's doing. Absolutely. Like he's a very capable person to do that job. Right. Right. So um, at the trial, I'm going to read this. So at the trial, um Katagiri himself, so Seiji Katagiri, the captain, said, um, when I, sw- and this is why there's two conflicting reports, so we're just going to, for the sake of understanding this, we're going to assume that the, that the action Seiji took was um, canceling the autopilot, shoving the control f- column forward, and killing the engines. Okay. 
And According- there's, there's, like, no way to prove what actually happened. There's just two theories out. Is that... It's the most bizarre thing in the world that we don't know for sure. Because yeah. I, I'm sure that the flight data recorder should have this information. Someone can correct me if if DC-8s in 1982 just didn't have that technology. That I, I don't understand why we don't know for sure. Yeah. Um, but what, accord- what Seiji said himself at his trial is, uh, when I switched from autopilot to manual operation in order to land the aircraft, I suddenly felt extremely queasy. I was overcome by an inexplicable panic and almost fainted. Hmm. So that was his experience of what was happening. Okay. And from the external, right, from the, the other two pilots' perspective, um, it, he was babbling or and crying, right? Yeah. He, he was speaking, you know, he was saying things that don't make any sense, right. shoving the control ca- column for, forward and, and weeping. Uh, the uh, the co-pilot um, testified that he was clearly in a state of delusion, right? I mean, I don't think anybody really argued that. There was some um, argument at trial that because he switched right so when you think about i don't know what the laws are in japan exactly but obviously just to use this as an example in the u.s um if you want to claim um uh, not guilty by reason of insanity part of it part of that case is what was your state of mind and did you understand that what you were doing was wrong Mm -hmm. right and seiji had changed out of his uniform quickly yeah. and are thrown a sweater over it to um, hide his identity as the captain. But in the end, they did find him not guilty by reason of insanity. Okay. So he was um, sent to a uh, psychiatric facility to live in uh, Tokyo where he lived for several years and then he got out like, they yeah he he nobody there's no cure for schizophrenia but he wasn't a danger to anyone yeah he didn't fly again but he's actually alive today oh he's still alive yeah he lives um i think it's kind of i think people always mention this because it's kind of a romantic idea that he lives near mount fuji in japan oh okay yeah but he lives in in like a what's described as you know a beautiful part uh with his wife he and his wife still are together okay yeah and uh, like i know this is a really different one than the ones we normally do um but i don't know i guess a when i first heard this story the way it was described was like captain intentionally crashes the plane and then changes to hide his identity right right? which sounds like i don't know silly quirky bad scary murderous right like it's there you already know when you read something like that or hear something like that like there there's more context that is needed here yeah (laughs) you know because it's like that just doesn't that doesn't just happen right just because yeah he's he, uh, so none of the pilots were killed. Um, the uh, Seiji is actually the only pilot to ever survive intentionally crashing a plane, Jeez. if that makes sense. Yeah. So 
Um, obviously, thank God pilots survive crashes with some frequency. Um, but he's the only person to survive this exactly. And I guess the other reason I wanted to, there's like a couple different reasons why I think this story is worth telling. Um, so after this happened, um, Japan Airlines did set up um, a like a mental health resource system for their crews i have no idea how um i don't how can i say this so right now it's 2021 and there's tons of people who could benefit from mental health from psychiatric care from all of this and there's still so much stigma right here in the u.s Mm -hmm. It's very hard to imagine how difficult it would have been at this time to avail yourself of care that you need. People know you need it. You know you need it. And I think it's probably wrong to – I think uh, the worst thing that could happen is for, like, anybody listening to this to hear it and say, like, well, I don't have paranoid schizophrenia. So, like, yeah, if I had that, I would go and talk to somebody. If I had that, I would tell a doctor. If I had that, I would go and see a therapist. But if you think about killing yourself or if you think that you'd be better off dead or if you, you know, feel like it would be so much easier to not be alive – that's a good enough reason too. Yeah. You're not less important yeah. than any of the other people on board that plane. You're not less important. And if you're important, then you're worthy of more than just living, right? Right. And just accepting the fact that your struggles aren't as bad as somebody else. I mean, that doesn't negate your own feelings and your own experience right right you can't compare yourself your mental illness to somebody else's which is not how that works it's not how the psyche works it's not how any of it yeah was processed right right other people suffering more than you doesn't alleviate your suffering in any way no and it just furthers the shame that you're already feeling because right. how how dare you feel upset when you don't have this other thing? Right, and the right then that shame just like deepens right. and deepens. And from the external perspective, it's really clear to see that that doesn't make sense. Right. Like from the external perspective, and with the benefit of time, your kids, my kids, like whoever's listening to this, your kids in forty years, because oh my god, nineteen eighty two was forty years ago, yeah. but. Um, in 40 years, I'm sure people are really going to wonder why, you know, anybody, anybody spent decades struggling with depression at this time. I hope so. I really hope so. I hope so. I really hope that's the way that we go. And it is one of those things where you, you just have no way of knowing how much better things could be. And it's really hard to imagine things being better when you're in the pit yeah. of, of depression or anxiety or, you know, whatever else you might have. If you're, you know, if you and your partner, you and your spouse are having a hard time, right? It can be really, really hard to imagine it being better again. Yeah. Or I hear people say, like, oh, well, if we have to go to couples counseling, then you should just break up. Why? Right? No. No. Why? You can even you can go to couples counseling even if you're in a healthy relationship. Or- yeah. 
Yeah, you can. You definitely can. And and a lot of it, it can be called like consultation. You know, a lot of therapists will do. Some people uh, like to go for essentially health checkups. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Or if you have just there's you know short term solution focused therapy and stuff that's more like there's one thing like we can't get through this one conversation. Yeah. Um. On the other hand, I will say if there's like one conversation you're having a hard time getting through with your partner, start by saying that, yeah. right? <laughs> just say, this is hard. We have a hard time talking about yeah. this, right? Start there. Why is it hard? And you can hopefully totally have that conversation between the two of you. But if it, if you get stuck, you can ask for help. Yeah. But Wow. Yeah. I had a... Um... She's now since passed, but I had a family member who had schizophrenia and it was, yeah, constantly in and out of, you know, mental hospitals and uh, psychiatric facilities. And I mean, you know, and she was, she was my grandmother's age. So or a little younger, I think, um, and so this was, you know, even before the 80s of her dealing with this. And she was in the military. And, uh, I mean, she just couldn't. She couldn't. She, it was going untreated for so long. And yeah. it really, really impacted her life. And, um, yeah. you know, it was like a cycle every... At the end of her life, my grandmother was really her, her caretaker from afar. I mean, you know, mm. she really helped her with all of her day-to-day... Or not necessarily day to day, but her, you know, important decisions that she had to make. And yeah. And, um, you know, every, I don't know, I don't know what the time span, every six months or so, she would get a call that, you know, from the police saying, like, we found her here. She's mm-hmm. just been sitting, you know, or she would drive her car until the gas would run out, call AAA. AAA would put gas in the car. She'd drive until that gas ran out. Like, you know, and so yeah. it was just, it was just a cycle and it was, it was, um, it was really hard for her, I think. And, um, you know, and she had access to and received medical care, you know, I mean, she was, she was very well taken care of in that re- regard and still really struggled even up until her right. death. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't that, that long ago that she died and we're still, you know, just like you said, we're still dealing with this the stigma and I mean even even the care sometimes I feel like is can be subpar in in a lot of places yeah and uh, can I say this like it's impossible to know how mm, her experience would have been without any of that care exactly like it would have been you know and and it mental health care is so much better now than it it used to be and again how can I say this she was the way you're describing was she was she living independently yeah eventually she was yeah she was living independently yeah I mean and she had kids and she had a, a husband I mean they divorced and I think she eventually lost custody of the kids but um you know after she received help she was able to live independently and you know, as long as she was taking her medicine, then she she was able to function. But yeah. I mean, I, and that's part of the 
part of the struggle is that it's, you know you start feeling better and you stop taking your medicine because right kind of makes your brain fuzzy or you're constantly having to find the right dose or you know, yeah it, it is a struggle it is so hard and that is such a difficult thing to get help for so i can't even imagine in japanese culture in the 80s what that must have felt yeah. like and with also the utmost respect for the families who lost people in that crash too you know right. like it doesn't oh negate that at all no you know, oh my not, gosh it's not excusable no. by any means those are just two separate conversations you know right i mean it's i think that the feeling that like i should be able to do this on my own mm. or i don't want anyone to help me or i don't want anybody to you know i don't i don't want to need help right the idea that that there's something better about um getting through something on your own or the idea that there's something more admirable that it that about that there's something more admirable about loneliness yeah. i don't know about suffering by yeah. yourself about not talking to anybody yeah. that that idea right like that kind of individualism yes. yep. does so much harm yeah. and it's imaginary because that's humans we humans cannot be by themselves and i think that you know the pandemic has obviously illustrated that for a lot of people yeah. but the the truth is is that people like people love you people love you and people need you and people who you haven't even met yet will love yeah. you people who you haven't even met yet will need you in the future like you're an important part of this of humanity you matter and other people matter to you and acknowledging and honoring and allowing the reality that we're all interconnected i mean that's what's so sad about this situation right like he his actions had a terrible 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 impact on everyone who was affected by this right not even just the folks who died and the people who loved them but everybody yeah. it had a terrible impact and if there wasn't that pressure to suffer alone if you didn't feel like you couldn't say something if you didn't feel like you could ask for help you know would that have happened and that's something that can't, is very difficult to answer yeah. there's just nothing to it, there is very very literally nothing to be ashamed of it's not weakness it's not something that you have to overcome by yourself and the other thing is if you're gonna do it by yourself at least do the damn thing right, right? like at least like be on your own yeah. team like actually like like be loving and tender toward mm -hmm. yourself or take care of yourself uh, like get a good book um, about mental health keep a journal to keep track of how you're mm -hmm. feeling whatever the thing is that you're waiting to do whatever the thing is that you're not doing because you don't know if you'll be able to the thing that you're waiting for just do it like I don't know I'm not in your life I'm not a fortune teller <laughs> I'm not trying to pretend sure. you know that I know what's going on in other people's lives but like if you are trying to white knuckle it be nice yeah. to yourself in the midst of that yeah when I um a couple I think it was two years ago I had a really I mean you know I had a really rough time 
right when I had moved and I was feeling really, really, really down. And there were times when I, I didn't feel like I could even do the dishes some days or even, you know, get out of bed. And, yeah. and I remember, I, I think it was, it was either you or it was somebody else, some, some other book I was reading, but, um, you had said like, you deserve a clean space. Like you don't, you don't have to do those dishes because you have to do the dishes. Like you mm. deserve to live in a clean space. And that completely like changed my, my outlook on it because it's, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it, it doesn't have to be dirty, you know? And, and when yeah. those, those like little chores are just so painful to do, just like that little ounce of self-love that you have, like eat it up, you know, kind of, and just embrace it. And that's really what got yeah. me, I mean, got me through to the next day, you know? Yeah. Good. Yeah. And it's yeah. important. Yeah. All of that stuff is, I mean, not for everybody, but for a lot of people, that's the first thing to go. Like, and I know yeah. that's, you know, I mean, I'm very, very grateful that, um, you know, after a period of really severe depression yeah. right years ago that um I never thought would go yeah. away like I never dreamed in a million years that I wasn't going to live with depression right. I mean it was whatever 13 years or yeah. something of living with depression I never thought it would go away and I, I still I wish I could find the therapist I saw at the time when I was I, I know I've talked yeah. to you about her but the therapist I saw when I was 22 who was so like I just literally just freaked her out by how depressed I was <laughs> she was like I have to go talk to my supervisor you can't leave and I was just like and I, I know the rules you right. can't leave me. but I'm gonna say but, whatever I want um, damn it <laughs> but I just think like you know and then I I stopped seeing her because I um, moved, I guess that's how yeah. I'll put it, and and got way better within, like, that year, and I've, like, always wanted to, I can't find her, I tried to look her up, I don't know where she is, but I've always wanted to, like, write her a note <laughs> and just be like, hey, I made it, <laughs> I'm better, yeah, I really you did made, made it, it. you I, really I, made it, yeah, in yeah. so many ways. It, and it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it, but I just think that um, at some point we're going to do a story about the SeaTac incident, which as you all know, Mariah is intentionally kept. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but people who know what I'm talking about, know what I'm talking about. And obviously that would be another conversation about mental yeah. health, but I just think that people who work in aviation, the, the hours can be ridiculous. The pay can be terrible if you work at the airport. The family um, separation. Are one of exactly right. The distance, the hours, the messing up your sleep schedule, yeah. the um, like thing. It, it, working in aviation can just the stakes are so yeah. high, right? The stakes are so high, and I, you know, and then everyone else isn't exactly having the cakewalk, right? It's still the pandemic. Yep. It's still life i don't know i just the the danger of doing a story like this is obviously that people will think that um people with 
mental health diagnoses are dangerous. And of course, that's no. not the truth. That's, you know, these stories are rare for a reason. These these are the rarest of the rare, yeah. right? Like, this is the most unusual kind of story. Yeah. But the, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to make space for this conversation because I think that... Um, because everyone's too damn important. Like life is too short and you matter too much yeah. to um, to wait. So you can like, start to have a better relationship with yourself. You can start to be kind to yourself before your external situation gets better. Well, and I mean, we say this all the time too, just talking to each other. Life is short, but life is really long. And yeah. if you feel like you're suffering or you feel like you're in a bad place, place like it's going to be a long time if you don't address it and it can be a really painful experience yeah but that feeling sometimes people get caught up I know I've gotten caught up in when I first when like my mental health first started to recover when I was 21 I remember thinking like I, I had like a period of time where I just had to grieve the time that I lost mm, to depression, yeah. like the years where, you know, you just lose yeah. time to depression, you lose relationships, you lose um, friendships sometimes, you know, it it's really, really hard, but I would rather just grieve that. And, yeah. and that's so much better than then feeling for the rest of my life like oh well it's too late or oh yeah. it's not worth it or oh you know whatever like that is it's a it's a shame yeah I guess it's just a damn shame because the truth is that um life is long and it's good that you're alive and you can be genuinely I want to say happy and sometimes people balk when I was super depressed. I like balked at the idea of happiness. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just part of the deal, but you can be content. You can be comfortable yeah. in your skin. You can be, you can be like moving toward the things that you want mm-hmm. to. And you know, I, I don't know. It's hard. It is impossible to believe that things actually can be so much better when you're in that dark place so you just have to take people's word for it people who have been through it like you just gotta bet on the idea that that we're not lying yeah it's there is like nothing to lose by rolling the dice on trying to get better and trying to love yourself more and trying to just not be your own worst enemy. Just be on your own team. Yeah, exactly. And maybe we can add some, like, I don't know, notes to this episode with some resources. Yeah. In the U.S. and Canada, um, I'll put it in the notes, but um, Open Path Collective is a... Um, Open Path Collective is a directory of therapists who agree to accept between 30 and 60 dollars a session um, which is obviously a lot cheaper than therapy usually costs if you have health insurance in the u.s you can um, call the number on the back of your insurance card or go on the website that should be listed on the back of your insurance card and see what there and there will be a list of therapists who take your insurance but find someone who's a good fit 
uh, psychologytoday.com, obviously. It's kind of yeah. the famous one. Um, and yeah, you can email yeah. us. We we can't be um, no. your therapist, but you, you can know, email yeah, us. No. Yeah, just just let us know. Just gonna... Just let... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Just email uh, us. Yeah, if you want to email us, it's thepodcrashed at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Instagram and TikTok yes. still yep. for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Actually, um, there was one thing I was going to talk oh, to you about, me. Mariah. And dear listeners, um, I have been thinking that there's a couple uh, incidents that I really want to be able to do justice yeah. to. So there's a couple, um, JAL123. Um, none of these numbers make mean anything to Mariah, so don't worry. <laughs> One, two, three. It really is a real surprise. Yeah, it's a real yeah. surprise for Mariah. So, um, uh, the SeaTac incident. Um, I'd really like to do something on. I have kind of a big idea for Swissair One One One. Um, but what that might mean is we might, um, rather than putting them out every week, we might have to do some extra special episodes that yeah. take a little longer. So if you prefer to hear Mariah's sweet voice every single week, um, then you can always let us know that. But if you'd like uh, longer episodes that um, maybe go a little deeper, it wouldn't be all the time because, you know, not every flight is worth talking about for right two hours but if you want longer episodes if you like um things that take a little longer we're happy to do it but we might not be able to do it as often (laughs) we are full-time yeah we are (laughs) yeah yeah we we um believe it or not this is not (laughs) our only (laughs) game i know you don't believe it but it's fine yeah (laughs) but we if there's a flight that you'd like us to cover um again another good Mm -hmm. reason to email us um if you have anything any corrections anything you want to add anything at all you can obviously let us know you can also send us um those voice memos if you want uh they you can record a 60 second audio clip which if you like we can play at the beginning of the episode if you have a correction if you have a story say hi really anything you want um and so let us know what you want and we will try and i hope some point in the next few episodes maybe i can at the end i'll tell my crazy my two crazy airport stories (laughs) That should yeah. be a whole episode. That should have been tonight. <laughs> That's That's <too> <laughs> yeah. Mariah has some very good. Maybe we'll do that instead of maybe we'll do like a big episode that takes a couple weeks. But on the off weeks, yeah. we'll just tell stories yes. about the airport. Yep. I like that. Yeah. So send us fun. your airport stories yeah. and maybe we'll read them. You have no idea how badly yeah. you want to read your airport stories. It's like a joke in my life where if I like am seeing somebody, you know, somebody, whatever, who lives far away and, you know, ask them like, oh, how was your flight? And they're like, oh, it was fine. Tell and I'm like, everything. no, no, yeah. how was your flight? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your flight. I want to know. Um, so by all means, really anything. Yeah, we, we love do. hearing from you. Yeah. We love you. Because we love you. I love you, Casey. Have I love night. you, Mariah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Pod Crashed. 
We love you and we hope you're well. And even if you're not, that's okay. Don't be afraid to reach out. See you next week.